Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we provide the true story behind movies based on a true story. Today we're going to talk about the movie Never Cry Wolf, probably the best movie you've never heard of. It is a film based on the true story of Farley Moat, a man who went to the Arctic to study the wolves, and the book he wrote changed how people look at wolves and kicked conservation efforts into high gear. Children in Canada still read his book in school to this day. My guest for today's episode is my frequent collaborator, John Helix, a local musician in the San Diego area. Find him on Facebook and Twitter at John Helix Official. Our good friend Dawn joins us as well to give her opinions and insight into the film. Never Cry Wolf gets a 7.5 out of 10 rating from the Internet Movie Database, a 100% fresh rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and it doesn't even get listed on Metacritic. Oh, Metacritic, what are you doing? You have a page for the actor who stars in this movie, Charles Martin Smith, but no mention of one of his best films? Sheesh! How is Never Cry Wolf as a movie? It's excellent, by the way. I just want to stop here and say how much I love this film. And how is it as a presentation of the true story of Farley Moat? We'll talk about it and give it a grade for entertainment and a grade for truthfulness. If you're ready, let's get started. If not, just hit pause. We'll still be here. Now you hear me. Now I'm on mic. That's how these things work. Shut up. I'm just saying. Are we recording? You want to look? Yes. Oh, wait. That's the wrong movie. (laughs) So, yeah, I told you about all the albums I went through right over there. My grandparents' collection. Ah. A lot of easy listening. So if you like Perry Como or Andy Williams. Did you show them the performance one? Help yourself. Performance one. Which performance one? The Shakespeare. Ah, the one right in front of ah, you. Yes. Fun with Shakespeare. Ah. I thought you might enjoy that. However The Comedy of Errors. Wow. However, I'm going to have to digitize that for you because it's a seventy eight. Oh. Okay. The other thing I have there for you is back in the day when I was at the newspaper. Yeah. That is a press kit from the ABC miniseries, The Beatles. Oh, cool. That came out at that time. It is not formatted to work with any operating system that exists today. Okay. (laughs) But. Then why are you giving it to him? Because you you can still go into the discs and access the pictures and the videos. Cool. Thank you. So I thought you might uh, enjoy poking through that. Awesome. I'm just going to have to find a, uh, a, a CD insert. Somewhere. A yeah. CD insert. A pl- CD player that I can insert it into. I don't have a CD drive, no. Really? Anywhere. Don't we have CD players in the cars? It's a, it's a CD-ROM. It's a CD-ROM. Yeah. You, you uh, don't have a CD-ROM on any computer. Do we? Yeah. He's saying he doesn't have any optical drive at all. Mm-mm. It's all digital. You can't touch it. Can't touch it. No, no, uh, no physical media. No physical media. Is yeah. Well, very strange. Then I'll tell you what. I'll. Uh, <laughs> Why is that strange? Uh, judgy. Not judgy. I'm just saying. <laughs> Jeez. I'm just saying. So I, I'm a digital minimalist. <laughs> <laughs> I I just don't want the stuff. Yeah. I, I just don't want the clutter. I want the computer and everything. But I just yeah. don't want the stuff. The, the stuff. I want e clutter. Do you watch Archer? You, you showed me a couple of episodes. Ah, it was great. Fans are split on it right now. Because it's still going. Still going. 11th season started. And what's happened for the past three seasons is Archer has been in a coma. <laughs> but what has happened in those three seasons is they've taken the characters and they have put them in different genres for the entire season. Okay. Season 10 was Archer 1999, so it was all, <laughs> all in space. Uh, they, they did one that was all like hard-boiled detective film noir style. 
And and the characters physically look like the characters, but have different names and they act a little differently. So they've been doing some kind of really interesting things with it. And some fans haven't been happy with it because they've taken this thing that fans have known for for six years, a style and an aesthetic and the characters, and now they're they aren't doing that anymore. And I personally like it because yeah. I because I look at it from a, a creator's perspective. If you're doing the same jokes and situations for six years, you got to freshen it up a little bit. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because have you seen that before Louis C.K.'s Despicable Fall from Grace? Um, you, you mean when people stopped referencing Louis C.K.? <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, whatever. He's, he still exists, so yes. I'll say his name. <laughs> it's not Voldemort. Um, <laughs> He, Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, and Ricky Gervais are talking. Seinfeld makes the point that he never, he's never changed his act. He writes one act, and he wants that act to live for years on tour. And everyone else's point is we do a new thing every year. We write a whole batch of new material every year. And I think that's interesting because Seinfeld's comedy does not age very well. Like his stand-up, I think it's funny. Yeah. But... It's definitely dated, and his his act from the eighties. It's observational and interesting, but for for me, Chris Rock is better in the in the eighties yes. and nineties mm-hmm. than Seinfeld. So that's an interesting point from mm. a creator's perspective. Seinfeld was saying, "No, I want my act down, and I don't want it to change at all." And you know what? I'm really curious because I know he's um, he was really a Bill Cosby devotee. When it comes to mm-hmm. comedy aspects, mm-hmm. uh, I Which wonder. He brings that up as well. Another name, not to mention. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I, I wonder how Cosby was with his act because Cosby was known for being very inventive with the storytelling and the topics. Mm-hmm. Because you know that that was the thing about Cosby is if you ever watched himself, which you know all things considered is still a a great comedy act he did. It's it's not the usual setup punchline setup punchline, and a lot of the stuff is very memorable, but very safe as well. Hmm. I guess you could say so. And that was very deliberate packaging on his part too, because mm-hmm. he did blue work, and then he decided yeah. he was going to package himself. Yeah, but he did it in himself. A lot of is very relatable. It's like sure. when, when he talks about he and his brother grew up believing that. Uh, one of them was named God Damn It, and the other one was named Jesus Christ. Yes. <laughs> because they're like, God damn it, get over here! Jesus Christ! Yeah, no, I remember. I, I'm not disparaging that in and of itself. I'm just making the point. He he crafted a package. Yeah. It was very purposeful. It was almost a character. Because this is a guy who used to joke, you know, that he was so excited to get married because now she can't say no. I mean, that's... He, he made a deliberate shift to make himself more relatable and marketable to a large audience to be commercial. You know, yeah. it, it was a business decision. Yeah, that's very much like in music. Chuck Berry yeah. knew who he needed to sell records to. Yeah. So he wrote about the topics that teenagers are interested in and sold the music to white teenagers. Early Beatles. I have no idea how we seg into talking about a man in the wilderness by himself with wolves from this conversation. I don't think we do. I think we just start. And this is our this is our second take at this. Yeah. In the morning again, we're we're, we're tempting the fates. We're revisiting the first uh, disaster, huh? We are. We are. Which, which the disaster being, I did not hit record. When we got together to discuss, you're still looking at the screen. I am aren't looking you? at the it's screen. It's recording. <laughs> yes, I understand. It's recording. <laughs> when we got together to talk about Never Cry Wolf, and we were talking earlier, I don't remember the discussion. I have the notes, but but I don't remember what our discussion was on it. But it was a good discussion. It was a good discussion. I'll, I'm going to try. I'm going to try to be fresh. I'm try, I've been trying to forget it, like I was trying to forget the movie. <laughs> Okay, I guess we'll start there. And Don, and Don do you remember do the discussion? A... Right behind you. I don't remember anything. I sort of went red after you said I forgot to hit record, so I blanked it all out. It was just a memory wipe, huh? It was a memory wipe. Okay, so so you were trying to forget the movie. This is one of my favorite movies ever. I discovered it when I was a teenager. I've watched it. I think I watch it about once a year. 
and it still it still hits me and i was so excited to share this movie with you john <laughs> uh, i was so excited to, to to share it and get your get your take on it and uh, and discuss the themes that are involved in the film and have some good meaty discussion and your take on the film is say that it's categorically boring what, what? empirically <laughs> empirically Perhaps. so what what was boring about this it's a open space with a lot of silence you mean like the arctic yep <laughs> so so it was the setting a place i have no desire to be um an experience i have you know no desire to have and uh i it's like that film the bear that's that's the only re- reference point i can think of I, it the movie just wanted to make me scratch my eyeballs out it was so i mean not because it was so bad, just because it was so dull. Scenically. S- scenically, yeah. Scenically. Yeah, yeah, visually. And 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 I, I think, I, honestly, I think it's the lack of dialogue probably in the film. It's the same okay. thing. With the, the bear had no dialogue, right? The bear was just a, a bear. Yeah. If I remember that correctly, it's just a, a, a camera following a bear and a bear and a cub, cub yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of like that with a human being. Jeez. Oh, we have to do Lawrence of Arabia. No. <laughs> well, you, we, we maybe mu- you do. I'm, I'm not. I'm not in on that. We one. must do Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> so, so scenically, it was too sparse for you, Don. Your thoughts on uh, Never Cry Wolf? Uh, scenically, I would say it was breathtaking. I, it, I, th- I thought it was beautifully shot. You could get a sense of the expanse. And expanse. One must be comfortable with the void in order to enjoy it. <laughs> yes. At this at the same time, I would say that's not what I found the most compelling. I mean, I think I think nature is important. I think we should be stewards of it. And that gave me an appreciation for the way the wild was presented and how man is in fringing on it it doesn't fill me with a desire to be there i have i've oh no me me neither i've not no or any form of outdoors i just i know rocks yeah no no rocks i don't that might be it too for me yeah there's just too much too much natural landscape i think and for someone who i like pavement you know Mm -hmm. like concrete so I, I like the wilderness of a good library. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I think if the, you know, if nature doesn't do anything for you, I think it's a really tough movie to appreciate. Yes, I would agree. Mm, well, let's talk about that because I don't know. I, I feel like I need to sell both of you on it a little more. It, it, it stirs in me the need for stewardship. It doesn't stir. Mm. It doesn't stir in me a longing to be there or be an active part of that stewardship. It makes me recognize that the people who are involved in the stewardship are vital. And you know, it's interesting you say that because that was the actual intent of the true life account that the movie is based on by Farley Moat. But we're going to get into all of that in just a second. But I think what we should do is let's go ahead and tell people what the movie is about. Now that they know John was entirely bored by it and we'll go from there. Tyler is a government employee who is assigned to travel to the Canadian Arctic to study why the caribou population is declining. And Tyler is played by Charles Martin Smith, who I think was fantastic in this role. Fabulous. He's great in just about anything I've seen him in. The Untouchables. Mm -hmm. He was great in The Untouchables. American Graffiti. He played Frog. Mm -hmm. He was great in that. And with the caribou population, the theory is that their decline in population is due to wolf pack attacks. And Tyler is sent to confirm or deny the theory. His job is to study the wolves and kill one in order to examine its stomach contents. Tyler's journey begins in the local town where he meets the bush plane pilot, Rosie, played by Brian Dennehy. <laughs> okay, 
And what? What do you? Why are you both laughing? What that is it? Fucking smile! I love that in the plane. Oh, that shot! <laughs> that shot through the windshield yeah. with the sun on him and the goggles and and the teeth. Yeah. The teeth. The teeth. Brian Dennehy. He was amazing in this film. Fabulous. Yeah, I enjoyed that. If the whole film could have been shot in the airplane ride, you know, when yeah. st- that would have that. Now that's a film I would want to watch. You know. And I think what was great is there are a lot of films. Well, I mean, there's not a lot of films, but films that do take place in Alaska tend to touch on the quirky, stir crazy nature of the local population, and. They never addressed it directly. They just had Brian Dennehy present it. <laughs> show don't tell. Exactly. <laughs> it was a whole show don't tell. And it was just, it was marvelous when he goes outside of the airplane door while the plane <laughs> is in flight. A Dennehy is worth a thousand words. <laughs> <laughs> to, to fix whatever the problem was. And he has Tyler take the controls. Yeah. And, and Tyler's letting the plane lean to the left. And he's leaning back and saying, to the right, Tyler, to the right, to the right. <laughs> it was just, yeah. He, he wasn't afraid for his life. He was alleviating the boredom. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Because his reaction was not a man who was on the precipice of death if Tyler didn't pull that yoke the other way. Yeah. Well, maybe he'd just become acclimated to the possibility of mm. imminent death at any moment. Could be, but I, I, I do. He seemed to enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> That that's the thing. It was alleviating yeah. boredom. Yeah. yeah, I think freaking Tyler out was yeah. the highlight of his day. <laughs> but but I think the other piece of that is it also plays into his character later on in the film, which we'll talk about. And he meets Rosie. Rosie flies him out to the middle of the Arctic wilderness, where he flies away, leaving Tyler with all of his many provisions from the U.S. government, including boxes of toilet paper and a typewriter and forms in triplicate. And that's one of the things I really love about this movie is the things they show in order to make a commentary, Hmm. which is why would you outfit a guy going by himself into the wilderness Mm -hmm. with all of these crate loads of shit just because they fit some protocol. But we're never given that discussion within the halls of government. Again, we're just shown the result of what those discussions are. And that's what I really like about this movie is the the visual absurdities that take place where you have this vast landscape, this untouched wilderness. And now suddenly in one fell swoop, man has appeared and forms are blowing across the tundra and it, visually it's absurd it's beautiful in a way but it's also making a commentary that we don't have to be there but 10 seconds and we're already fucking it up mm-hmm. like when calvin and Hobbes go to mars yes right yeah tyler alone in the wilderness is rescued by an inuit named utek who gets him off the ice and builds a shelter for him Tyler is alone in the wilderness and is studying the wolves and having social exchanges with them, such as marking territory, where he and the wolf end up creating an agreement of what the boundaries are. For the wolf, it was took probably five minutes. For Tyler, it took much longer and many cups of tea as he went running around urinating. He notices that there have not been any caribou in the area, but there are plenty of mice running around. And as an experiment to see if a large omnivore can subsist on a diet of mice, Tyler begins to chow down, which I think uh, I think that was one of your favorite scenes in the movie. Well, it's so g- disgusting when he's got that skewer of mice and you can hear them squelching and he pulls them out of the gravy. It also shows his dedication to this particular experiment. But I love... That he uses it to frighten the other mice. Yes. Because they're all yeah. they're all lined up staring at him. And and this is part of what you can also imagine is some of him how he's seeing it. Cause you know the mice aren't really just lined up watching him eat other mice. But he's been there a while. 
<laughs> so, so you can envision this is how he's experiencing it. That the <laughs> mouse tribe has come out to to bear witness <laughs> to the death of their brethren at his hands, <laughs> and then they go running when he when he's chomping through the, the mice with their little bones. Another Inuit named Mike arrives at the camp. He has been sent by Utik to provide companionship. Mike knows how to speak English and Inuit and is able to translate for Tyler and Utek. Uh, Utek will say something very lengthy and it will always be from Mike. That's a good idea. <laughs> it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Like the Ents in Lord of the Lord Yes. Of the Lord of the yes. They take one to three days or something to say uh-huh. Frodo comes back. What was going on? We have just finished saying hello. <laughs> Mike is a wolf hunter and tells Tyler how wolves provide for him and his family. As autumn nears, Utek takes Tyler on a two-day hike to an area where the caribou will be migrating south. Tyler observes the wolves making unsuccessful attacks on the caribou and helps to drive a caribou towards the pack in order to get information for his study. Tyler examines the dead caribou and finds from the marrow in the bone that it is a diseased animal. The wolves are killing off the weakest of the herd in an act of predation. Tyler comes across Rosie and two hunters, which again, the surreal scene, it's mm-hmm. it's on this Arctic bay, and you have a what looks like it would be from a 1960s backyard with the umbrella and the table and he's Rosie's cooking steaks. Rosie insists on flying Tyler back to civilization, but Tyler refuses. Rosie says he will meet Tyler at his camp in two days. Tyler hikes back to his camp and the wolves are nowhere to be seen. Rosie appears as promised. And when Tyler sees a wolf tail, on the antenna of Rosie's plane, he makes the assumption that Rosie has killed George and Angie, the two wolves. Tyler shoots at his plane, making him leave. Tyler sees Mike at the camp, who is acting awkward upon seeing Tyler. His sparse teeth have been replaced by a full set of dentures. Tyler crawls into the den, looking for George and Angie, and he finds only the pups. He plays the wolf call on his bassoon, and the other wolves from the pack come and adopt the pups. Tyler and Utek are seen hunting across the tundra, and the voiceover implies that Tyler will someday return to civilization. Is that true of wolves, do you know? Would they actually adopt the pups of other wolves that have been killed? Uh, Good question. I'm not sure. I didn't find any research that showed that to be the case. Mm -hmm. But we're going to talk more about the research that Farley Moat did. He's the one who is Tyler in the movie and where he pulled his research from as well. But let's go ahead and finish up talking about the film. So personally, I I mentioned I've seen this since I was a teenager and loved it. I think it's beautiful and emotional. I think it's brilliantly shot. And you don't like it because the landscape is too sparse. Yeah, and I agree. I agree with all of your assessments aside from the liking it part it's just i again i think it's beautifully shot beautifully done i just don't find this is not my area of interest i'm not really interested in nature films um or films that whose subject is primarily open spaces or preservation of species or land or it's just i'm behind the cause i'm it's just not it, it's not a, something I like watching in a film. And, and aside from those themes, I, for me, there's also a piece of what is a resource and who determines what a resource is. Because when it comes to the wolves, Tyler and Mike and Rosie have very different v- views on what the value is of the wolves. For Tyler, it's for research mm-hmm. to find this answer that the government has sent him to find. For Mike, it's to provide for his family. Mm-hmm. And for Rosie, it's... Rosie didn't actually have a role with the wolves, it turns out, in the movie. So the question is, what is a resource when it comes to how humans determine it? 
And who gets to make the determination on what a resource is? And what I like about the film is there really aren't bad guys in it. I mean, you can be all mm -hmm. for Tyler and you could be unhappy with Mike, but that's Mike's reality. Mm -hmm. And that's Mike's reality in the environment that Tyler has inserted himself into. So who is Tyler to make a determination on what is right and what is wrong in any way? Well, and you're also, but you're also in, in going down that road, you're applying a human system of ethics and mm -hmm. logic and reason to, and you're considering humans separate from the natural world. So I think if you're talking about Mike, I think there's a very different interpretation of one's relationship to the natural world and it's, you know, it's animals and flora and fauna, et cetera. When you're part of that system, mm -hmm. you're killing within that system because you need, you, you need to, right? When, but if you, if you're not an active part and you're inserting yourself into that system, it's, it's almost like you're bringing a, a human outside, a human perspective to something that is inherently natural. But again, just that this is just getting into the discussion of whether humans are or are not a part of nature. And what I was thinking about as you said that is there is a distinction on how the Inuit relate to the natural world versus to how Tyler mm -hmm. relates to the natural world. And the natural world is much more a part of the daily life of the Inuit than it would be to Tyler. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that. I would tend to agree. There's this, <clears throat> and this whole idea of trying to figure out if humans are part of nature or we've set ourselves apart. There's this great line in the opening of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And he's talking about how dolphins and men are the second and first smartest creatures on the planet according to man because you know they came up with i don't know hot and cold running water or something like that and nuclear bombs and dolphins think they're the smartest for the exact same reason right? <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> you know we're part of nature but we're we're also bound and determined to dominate it as though somehow it belongs to mm -hmm. us to serve us rather than for us to serve the rest of nature if we truly are the smartest and most capable creatures on this planet. Yeah, and for me, that's a lot of what strikes me about this film and why I've liked it for so many years is because visually it's beautiful. I just get taken with the beauty every time, even though it's what's available on, v on, uh, on DVD is not the greatest transfer, unfortunately. But the landscape is beautiful, but it's also the ambiguity in in the themes being put forward where there isn't a solid answer given on right and wrong and it's entirely situational and based on your relationship to the natural world and i think that's a question that humans um i don't know sometimes i think humans have decided what that order is and other times i think humans are still trying to uh, figure out that order and humans usually figure it out when they end up being surprised by nature on some level so it's a it's a constant question that that continues, and I think this film presents it really well. Try to beat nature into submission, and she comes back with a vengeance. Oh, mm -hmm. she does. She yeah, just, does. Just because you ignore the symbiotic relationships doesn't mean they don't exist. Yeah. And uh, the production of this film was pretty unique. It was filmed over three years. It's incredible in Canada. For about a six-month stretch, Charles Martin Smith was the only person on the call sheet, which has got to be an odd experience for an actor, that it's just you. Yeah. Just completely you. This was a Disney film, and it is, and is the only Disney film to have frontal male nudity, which would be Charles Martin Smith in this, in this beautiful sequence, which took a couple months to film on its own of him on what is a relatively warm day on the tundra. I was in the Arctic! <laughs> <laughs> and he's sunning, and he ends up running naked with the caribou, which... Okay, uh, sorry, is is there another Disney film where there is any nudity? Because this seems like an odd leap for Disney to go from mm. 
prude and prig to we're going to show his junk. That I mean, it seems an odd leap in terms of choice of mm-hmm. this is the time we're going to show nudity. And you know, it's really interesting. I really wonder how that came about because I don't I don't know if there were discussions about what they'll be allowed to show, or I don't know if over a three year shoot you just get what you get. But also, maybe it falls into that. I mean, it's it it falls into that documentary ish type mm-hmm. feel, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like national geographic. So then it's a desexualized nudity. I, I don't know. It's just interesting to me that Disney would go, just go full frontal and yeah. say, give the green light on that, especially at the time, which was 84 yeah. when this yeah. film came out. Yeah. I think now that you frame it like that. Yes. Cause it's it weird. is completely desexualized. And to me, that is one of the best scenes in the movie. It's just this complete unfettered, joy and integration with the immediate world around him mm-hmm. with no care, no interest, no inhibitions that he has experienced his whole life as a human in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it, it is, I mean, it is, it's a, it's a joyful moment. Yeah. So even Disney can find joy in nudity in the human Woo! body. Uh, <laughs> amazing. Look- and I, I have to say a part of me says, watch out for the antlers. <laughs> I don't know how you guys walk around with those things all day. <laughs> so, uh, so two characters we talked about, Mike and Utek, they uh, they are actors who didn't appear in too much afterwards. Zachary, and I'm going to butcher his name, but his last name is Itimanan Itimanak. I T T I M A N G N A Q as Utek. This was his only film that he did, and I love him in this role. I, mm. I love his quietness. Mm-hmm. I, I love what he brings to it. And Samson Jora played Mike, and he appeared in a a couple more films. Uh, one was The Snow Walker, which was also a story that was based on something written by Farley Mowat, mm. who was the Canadian author who wrote this. And yeah, their their roles for being non-professional actors, it, I thought they did a great job. Where was um where the character uh, the actor who played Mike uh, where where did they where did they find him? How was he cast? Uh, I don't have any information on that. Huh. I I have nothing about that. Uh the director of this was Carol Ballard, and Carol Ballard seems to have uh made his niche in Hollywood working with animals and children, where the old adage is never work with animals and children. Some movies he has done included The Black Stallion, which is a be- also a beautiful film. Uh, Nutcracker, the motion picture. Hey. Uh, Wind, which is a movie about sailing. Uh, Duma, which was about a boy and his cheetah. The Black Stallion was about a boy and his horse. Fly Away Home was about a girl and her goose, where she tends to an injured goose and it returns to the flock. So he, he definitely has a niche of children and animal films that he's done well in. I think uh, the phrase is family-friendly films. Family-friendly, <laughs> yes. And Charles Martin Smith, he was so taken with that area they filmed in that you don't like that he moved there. Permanently? Permanently. Wow. And he also became friends with the author Farley Moat. And he was in American Graffiti, Starman with Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen. He was the government agent in that, Mm -hmm. The Untouchables. And after this film, he moved to Vancouver, Canada, and he became a director. And very similar to Carol Ballad doing films with animals and children, Charles Martin Smith directed Air Bud. He directed oh, a, a dolphin tale. <laughs> he directed a dolphin tale too. He directed the Snow Walker, the film I mentioned that uh, Samson Jora appears in. He directed a dog's journey home, and something to elevate his cred as well would be he directed the first episode of the TV series. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the episode titled Welcome to the Hellmouth. 
Okay, that raises him for me a little bit. There you go, out of family friendly. Buffy was one of my very favorite guilty pleasures ever, and I probably would watch it again. (laughs) Didn't they do like a re? Didn't they do a remake of that or something? Well, they're talking about it. Okay, well the T. Well, okay, for Buffy, you had the movie that had Kelly Swanson, Mm -hmm. and why am I blanking on the Sarah Michelle Gellar? Sarah Michelle. No, no, no. The actor who was in the movie, Paul Rubens, was in the movie. Yeah. And so was for which which role, honey? Beard, gray hair. One of my favorite actors. I'm blanking oh, on was uh, in Matt. Donald Sutherland. There you go, Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland was in it as well. Mm-hmm. So apparently, the studio had a lot of influence on the tone of that. Joss Whedon wasn't happy with that, and then they made that movie into a TV series, and Joss Whedon could have the control mm-hmm. and have the tone he wanted on it. But. Uh, Are they thinking about remaking it? I I think so. Oh, no. Don't do that. I know. No. But everything from the 70s, 80s, and 90s must be remade at this point. No, no. Yeah. No, it must be. redo everything. Because now people who were young in the 90s have kids, and they want to introduce them to the things that were in their youth. And then here's what happens. You do something like you remake Footloose and people go, oh, hey, whatever happened to that remake of Footloose? <laughs> and people say, oh, it came and went. It's gone. So why? Just no. No, I'm not a fan of that. It's funny. This, the phrase straight to video doesn't mean anything anymore, right? Oh, yeah. No. Interesting. Because right? that's what you COVID say. has wiped it out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it, Yeah. But that they, used to be such a besmirching. Be, it was like, like beneath a B movie, right? Used to have a stigma, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that one. It went straight to video. And, and now, for a movie to go straight to on demand, it's yeah. it's you're going to make enough money off of it while people are stuck at home with COVID. Well, and it'll yeah. be it'll be interesting to see once things come back to normal. Is that still going to remain? Are people still going to see them at home instead of go to movie theaters? Well, I mean. You know what Nietzsche would say, at this point, when you get to a level of so much pleasure, people will essentially stop striving for, mm-hmm. to move beyond it. Mm-hmm. So you'll get to a point where people basically push buttons and blink, movie, buh, walk outside, no. Which was also very Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, absolutely. As mm-hmm. well, the rooms with the screens. Yep, and- yep. Well, and that's where they took the good place as well. The TV series. Oh yeah. Toward the yeah. end, mm. it explored Kant and, and Nietzsche and a couple other philosophers, and took to the logical conclusion: what can possibly happen with eternity? Yeah. No, the good place was great. Yeah. It was really good. Now on Never Cry Wolf, let's give it a rating for oh, right. entertainment. Never Cry Wolf. <laughs> yes, that's why we're here. <laughs> let's give it a rating for entertainment out of four stars. Dawn, what would you give Never Cry Wolf as a movie? I'd probably still give it a three just because I enjoy looking at the scenery and I thought I thought it did what it intended. All right. And John, one to four stars, what would you give Never Cry Wolf? Um, based on my personal taste, I would probably give it a one or two. But uh, if we're going on how the quality of the film. That's, the quali- that's what we're Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd give it a solid three. Yeah, I'm right. a solid three. Yeah, even though I'd... Again, don't enjoy it personally. It's not to my taste. I think it was, you know, exquisitely made. The attention to detail, and again, visually, it, 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 it. I can see how it would be spectacular for many people. I do like the the nuances that you're getting into of what a resource is and our relationship to nature. You know, what what the, what constitutes that. I think that those are really interesting issues to discuss. Just in a different setting <laughs> so over coffee i, I want to i want to have my discussion about nature in a coffee shop on a street you know it's completely separated maybe a bush or something around so so you would have liked it if it was my dinner with the wolves yeah so they yeah, were maybe yeah. in a corner booth oh, yeah. of a restaurant yeah yeah, and, yeah. Bring, like, bring the wolves into the restaurant and with then, the inuits yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, that's let's see what happens and they could all discuss it well yeah. While having salads right. or something. Yeah. 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 Well, I think it's no surprise I give it four out of four stars. <laughs> I, I've already expressed my reasons why. Gorgeously shot. And yeah, it's like every shot in that film I just adore. And I guess when you have three years to 
to put something together. You can really take the time to craft and make it the, and that's the thing is there, there are other directors who go and name George Lucas, who take a lot of time and, uh, control over what they do, but there's a sterility that creeps in. Mm -hmm. And for a film that was shot over a three year time period and the care and meticulation that comes into play, it doesn't become sterile. It still feels natural. And and also when it comes to the wolves, the wolves are not made into cute little creatures. Mm-hmm. They're, they're trained animals who are there for the purpose of being in the film, but they're never presented as trained animals. They're presented as wolves. It takes on this odd mix of being a, a, a fictional film mixed with a documentary. Mm. Yeah. And the way it's presented. So, and which means I was very surprised when I started to look into the facts of the film. And the facts are where things get really interesting. And in this portion of the podcast, we're going to talk about how facts were presented in the film and the historical and factual accuracy of each item. At the end of the discussion, we're going to give the film a letter grade for truthfulness. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. The movie Never Cry Wolf is based on the book by Farley Mowat. Never Cry Wolf? Amazing True Story of Life with the Arctic Wolves is the full title. Always interesting. Amazing True Story. Amazing True... Those words coming together? Yeah. Amazing True Story. Oxymoronic. If I received an email from a Nigerian prince <laughs> yeah. that was giving me an amazing true offer, yeah. I would question it immediately. Yeah. But this is the amazing true story, and given... <laughs> And given that title, you would expect one of two things to happen with the story. You'd either expect it to be... Amazing. Or... True. I think it's more amazing than true. All right. And let's go ahead and take a look. As we know, there are going to be some liberties taken when translating from a book to a film. However, we need to talk about what happens when the book itself that the film is based on has already taken those liberties preemptively. So let's go ahead and take a look at a few bullet points and we'll just check them off real quick. In the book and the movie, it says Moat was with the wolves for two summers and a winter. And that's correct between the book and the film. (laughs) In the book, Mike is older than Utek but still does the translation. So we have an age reversal on Mike and Utek there. Halfway through the book, Moat does something interesting. He says, Utek's English has gotten better, and now the quotes from Utek are going to be attributed directly from Utek. So he lets you know you're no longer reading translation at this point in the book. You are reading what Utek is saying directly. And does he put it down word for word? Yes. In the, okay. Mm-hmm. Within quotes. In Within the book. quotes and so forth. He doesn't mm-hmm. paraphrase or you know, direct quotes. Okay. Another difference between the book and the film is the book spends much more time talking about the wolves' behavior around the den. And what Moat does is he puts forward the family relationships that the wolves have with each other. In the book, Mike does not talk about killing wolves. So that is a piece that was brought in just for the film. And also different from the film, George and Angie live. Hmm. We have these minor changes. And if we were looking at many of the films that are translated from other mediums that we look at, we'd usually say that those are very minor things. Overall, the movie would be true. However, we need to take a look not at the truthfulness of Never Cry Wolf as opposed to the book, We need to take a look at Never Cry Wolf, the book and the movie, as opposed to reality. And I need to provide some context for this discussion, because Farley's book, Never Cry Wolf, the amazing true story of life with the Arctic wolves, was largely seen as fiction before it was even published. And I think it's interesting how this came about, because there wasn't Google when this book was released in 1963. So... Who was already viewing it as fiction? People who were in scientific research circles. They were seeing early copies of the book that he was sending out to other people, you know, as one does when they're in the process of writing a book. And they were noting entire instances 
that were lifted from other researchers that they knew. However, the real push to prove how fictional Never Cry Wolf was didn't occur until 1996. And the reason why is because without Google, this was all happening within scientific research circles who knew each other, knew each other's work, and they were also able to readily identify what Moet had plagiarized. But there was a Canadian magazine, a literary magazine, called Saturday Night. And what they did is they took Moat's personal papers, which he had donated to a university, and they used his own personal papers to refute his true story. <laughs> that is detailed in Never Cry Wolf. What you read is not what you read. <laughs> In fact, it's just what I said. <laughs> <laughs> they used his own research. <laughs> and, and this magazine, Saturday Night, put it all out there on the cover because the cover of that issue had a caricature of Farley Moat with a Pinocchio nose. Huh. So mm. they were very upfront on what their view was with this. So let's go ahead and take a look at some of the things they refuted. The first is that. Moat was alone in the Arctic on an assignment. And so in the movie and the book, we have Tyler in the movie, Moat in the book, was sent to the tundra alone with the job of providing the proof to support killing wolves due to decreasing caribou populations. He was responsible for filing scientific reports of his findings. Moat said that he was there for two summers and a winter with only Utek and Mike to provide company as he watched the wolves' behavior. In he the, said that in the book? Mm-hmm. In the book, Moat really paints the Canadian Wildlife Service, CWS, as an agency that is just hell-bent on killing as many wolves as they can. What really happened is that in 1940, there were 3 million caribou wandering around Canada. By 1948, that number had shrunk to 670,000. And the CWS viewed the wolf population as the reason for this huge decrease in population over a short period of time. And the answer from the CWS, Canadian Wildlife Service, was that wolf control was viewed as a legitimate method of mitigating the caribou decline. So we have man coming in and trying to bring a balance back to nature, which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. The scientific reasoning was that since wolves are carnivorous hunters, they placed a great pressure on the caribou population. But isn't that just nature? Yes, yeah. but man in his infinite wisdom yeah. viewed an imbalance taking place in nature and moved... Corrected yeah. imbalance. Yeah. Between 1952 and 1962, 12,000 Canis lupus were killed by the CWS. Control measures tapered off after 1959 when the caribou population started to rebound. So the CWS was following the data. Wolf control measures ended permanently after 1962. Moat's book was released in 1963. In reality, Moat was a junior member of two two-man research teams. <laughs> His time doing this work told... <laughs> Why is that so funny? It's just so grandiose of him. And it also goes back to another episode we did on the informant where he's an informant and he starts becoming grand more grandiose and talking about how we were working on this for two years as though he was part of this <laughs> FBI team. <laughs> so whether intentional or not, you have this sub theme running through this arc of episodes you have going on right now that that's a very interesting observation the motivation is much different between the two because in the informant it was mental illness mm -hmm. that was the motivator there we're going to get to what moat's motivation was here the observations that moat published were not his and were not unique there had been other researchers before him, such as Adolf Murray, who observed wolf populations for a long period of time and documented their family relationships and pack behaviors. In research circles, it was noted quite readily that Moat lifted entire passages from Adolf Murray's The Wolves of Mount McKinley, which Moat was given 
to read during his orientation. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then, okay, that, that is some balls out. You're going to crib from the book yeah. that you were given to read for your orientation. Yeah. Miri was an advocate for conservation of the wolf population. What Moat succeeded in doing was bringing these arguments to a public audience. Mm -hmm. One reviewer said, It takes a special sort of person to endure the frozen wilderness to study Arctic wolf behavior at length and to accept that these beautiful animals are intelligent and amazing killing machines that don't need to fulfill people's desires to view them as non-threatening mouse-eaters. Apparently, Mr. Moat just isn't that special sort of person. Oh, damn! But he is a liar. Not a lot of gray area there. Not a lot of gray area nope. there. So, let's go ahead and move on to talk about uh, what's shown in the movie regarding wolf behavior, territory marking, eating mice, and communicating with the wolves. In the book and the movie, they show Moat conducting experiments on eating mice to test if a large carnivore can subsist on a diet of mice, as Moat hypothesizes the wolves do. It also shows him urinating to mark territory of his camp and shows that these boundaries are accepted by the wolf. The movie and the book claim that indigenous people of the tundra can understand wolf howls and can tell from them where the caribou will be. What really happened? As mentioned, Moat lifted his observations of wolf behavior from Adolf Curry and also from another researcher, Lois Chrysler. There is no credible evidence that shows that wolves live off mice in the tundra. Additionally, there has not been any documentation that shows that man can negotiate territorial boundaries with a wolf through urination. <laughs> really? <laughs> Shocking. Regarding the communication with the wolves that he shows the Inuits doing, Moat has admitted that he, quote, allowed my subjective streak some leeway. <laughs> Is that a way of saying I took a little poetic and artistic license? It says he allowed his subjective streak ah, some okay. leeway. <laughs> Nicely said. Yeah, that, that's where he acknowledges it, huh? That is one place where he acknowledges it. I like how it's allowed to, you know? It's not, he. it didn't happen. It, 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 it was allowed to happen. It was like this thing that he couldn't control. Yeah. I, I can't. Con I allowed the, my subjective. No, you lied. <laughs> There's a difference. <laughs> I can't control if I plagiarize and lie. No, I just allowed it to happen. It was my, sub it was my, my subjectivity just took. Oh, so you were lying. No, my extreme subjectivity, which was at odds with reality, took over. And in the movie, Tyler is very scientific about his approach on researching the wolves. In the book, the more detailed descriptions of the wolves that he writes about, the wolves are heavily anthropomorphized. Mm -hmm. What really happened was the more that criticism came out about Never Cry Wolf, the amazing true story of Life with the Arctic Wolves, mm -hmm. the more Moat insisted he was not aiming to write nonfiction. He claimed his book was one of activism. There's a magazine, International Wolf, and it had an Really? It, it sounds like a gay thing, doesn't it? <laughs> international. Do they have an app for that? <laughs> but it's uh, International Wolf, and, and they're, uh, they're a group which is all about wolf conservation. They had an article in fall of 2008 titled The Mixed Legacy of Never Cry Wolf. Now, this is a publication whose mission is to, quote, advance the survival of wolf populations by teaching about wolves, their relationship to wildlands, and the human role in their future. Uh, the article that I'm about to reference was highly critical of Moat's approach, which is a bit ironic because International Wolf benefits directly from the activism that Farley Moat was putting out there, and also from the connection that Moat ended up making with the public. But but I get them not wanting to benefit from activism that is rooted in egregious falsehoods. I mean, 
you know, if you bring activism into other places and women's rights and social justice issues, you have to root those in reality and in truth. Mm -hmm. Because if you're putting forth my rights as a woman and you're doing it under complete pretense, it doesn't help me or womankind in the end. Right. So I get their position. It is important to understand that what drove Moat to write the book the way he did, and this is according to International Wolf, is that he served in combat in World War II and suffered from, at the time, what was considered shell shock, which we now know as PTSD. Um, I would like to make a small correction on that and yeah. digress a moment. A lot of us who are practitioners really object to it being called PTSD because the D stands for disorder and it's not a disorder. It is something that has been put upon you. It's something that's been inflicted upon you. Mm -hmm. So I would implore your audience to consider reframing it around post-traumatic stress and leaving it there. Duly noted. I'm also quoting an article from 2008. Sure. Okay. We will add that to the record counselor. Thank you. Thank you. Do you think international wolf, Refers to women as women folk in the magazine. Uh, <laughs> why would you ask that? It just sounds like they would go together. It does, doesn't International it? International Wolf. The, when we saw the women folk. <laughs> I, I don't think they do. Oh, okay. No, All right. no, I just wanted to check. I, I, I do. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but but I'll, uh, I'll make sure there's a link on the website. You guys can check it out. Cool. Okay. As a result of his post-traumatic stress, they claim that Moat was drawn to wolves due to his contempt for the human race. According to International Wolf, quote, some people who love and idealize wolves are motivated by contempt for the human race. For centuries, the nastiest human qualities have been unfairly ascribed to wolves. Now some individuals and groups ascribe greed and violence to humans seeing wolves as noble and innocent victims of human persecution. I think it's used as both. Think about the wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Predatory yeah. In, in a criminal way. And a wolf, wolf in sheep's clothing and a hen house and yeah. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. In 1963, when the book was released, wolves were viewed as just bloodthirsty vermin. The wolf management policies that were undertaken by the Canadian Wildlife Service were in response to overwhelming public demand that something has to be done about the wolves. Mm. With the publication of Never Cry Wolf, they had a new problem. Public demand about wolf protection that comes not from scientific data, but from feelings. Now people viewed wolves as a family unit, and how can you go in there and kill these family units? A whole shift had happened, and that was Farley Moat's entire intention. And it doesn't sound like there was the voice in the middle who was simply saying they need to let, be left to being part of the symbiotic relationships they have in the wild, well, in their natural habitat. Well, we know how well voices in the middle get heard. Yes. It's the extremes that suck up the oxygen. And it's easy to see why this happened. The book is really well written. It is snarky and humorous and thoughtful. It changed the public perception of wolves to the point where they went from being seen as vermin to becoming the poster child for wildlife protection efforts. Over the years, Moat has shifted from defending a true story to stating he was writing fiction all along although that would also depend on the audience he was talking to. When he was criticized by the scientific community, he would say, quote, truth is subjective. I never let the truth get in the way of the facts. When speaking to the public, he insists he is trustworthy. Prior to the publication of the book, Moat had correspondence with a Dr. L. David Meck, who was concerned with factual errors in Never Cry Wolf. Moet's response was that he's not a scientist. Quote, I had hoped that my approach, which is that of the creative writer, parentheses, perish the phrase, end parentheses, rather than that of a scientist would be so obvious that there would be no danger of anyone deciding to use the work as a serious reference text. But wasn't he part of a scientific team, yep. junior though he was? Yep. 
When Mick suggested warning readers that the book wasn't meant to be taken seriously as science, Moet refused. Quote, a foreword in which I explain that my story is not entirely factual would invalidate the point of my book, which is, of course, to establish to the public a more reasonable attitude towards the wolf. So he was trying to have it both ways all throughout. And so what we have here is we have liberties that are being taken in the book, not to enhance the story, but in order to create activism and to make a change in the public's response towards the perception of wolves, mm -hmm. which he was largely successful in doing. But this makes it tricky. How do we do a letter grade? Do we do a letter grade based on the book versus reality? Do we do a letter grade based on the movie versus reality? We're not two, de two degrees of separation. What about that? You got to go filter from reality to the book to the film. Rate that. <laughs> those those iterations. Book to reality to the film. So are we going to do two sets of grades? I have no idea. I don't either. Yeah. I, I'm stumped on this. But let, let me just ask you, if you're comparing reality to either the book or the movie, the letter grade you would give either is? Pretty low. D. D? Yeah. D for you, Don? Definitely a D. Definitely a D a for very, A very low D. Do we do we average this out then, like in school? Well, so you you get a grade for reality to the book, which is mm -hmm. a D, maybe a D minus, and then from the book to the film, which is probably a C minus. So it's it's barely passing. I don't think one is going to throw the curve here. <laughs> <laughs> It's just a D. It's D, okay. D's all around okay. for this one. Right. Sounds good to me. D's all around. I'll go with that. Uh, 3.5 for the film, but D's all around for the reality. But I find it really, really interesting. Here you have a guy who is just, he's hell-bent on changing how the public sees this. And he doesn't care whether he's seen as being truthful or not. Hmm. Where have we experienced that recently? Let me think. Let me think. Hmm. Where in recent history? Hmm. I, I don't know. I'm stumped. Not a loss. Yeah. So there we go. Never cry wolf. Don, thank you for joining us. Sure. John, thank you. Thank you. Now is the time when we fact check ourselves. I can't possibly presume to have every answer for every question that comes up during our conversations, and sometimes our guests will ask me to do some extra research, and I share that information here. For instance, Dawn asked if wolves really do adopt orphans from another pack, as it says in the film. This one gets a little complicated. The general consensus is that all adult wolves raise young within their own pack, but it is thought to be rare that wolves would bring in orphans from another pack. That would mean that all of the adults from the other pack would have had to die to leave the pups abandoned. And apparently that just doesn't happen that often. However, wolves can split off and form their own pack, and I suppose they may adopt pups in that instance. On the other hand, there have been documented instances where wolf packs have adopted humans. In Spain, Marcos Rodriguez Pantoja was a seven-year-old boy in the 1950s. He was abused by his parents and was sold to a goat herder as a slave and was abandoned in the woods at some point after that. He was able to kill small deers and attracted the attention of a wolf pack with whom he lived for 12 years. When he was found at the age of 19 by rural police, he could barely speak. Today he is 74 years old, he lives in Spain, and he gives lectures about his experience. So, uh, maybe adopting from another pack is possible, but the conditions have to be right. And John wanted to know how Samson Jora, the actor who played Mike in Never Cry Wolf, how he was cast. But unfortunately, there's really no information about Samson. He's been in a few other movies connected to Farley Mowat or connected to Charles Martin Smith. 
but the only information out there on the internet about him is only in connection with the movie Never Cry Wolf. That wraps up another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. If you liked it, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere. You can find all of the sources we used to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash nevercrywolf. I usually throw some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures. And for Never Cry Wolf, I have a behind-the-scenes featurette with director Carol Ballard talking about the movie. I want to thank John and Don for talking about Never Cry Wolf, one of my favorite movies. You can find John Helix on Facebook at John Helix Official. You can find his music in most places where you go to get your music. How are we doing with this project? Go like us on Facebook and Twitter at the handle of at Mostly Suck, or send us your feedback through our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com and you can recommend which movies you would like us to use for an episode and we will share the true story behind that movie based on a true story take care everyone <laughs>